So I am 17 years old, and I'm at my dorm room at the Hill School, just up Route 100. And I'm sitting, appearing to be staring out the window with a large copy, maybe some of you remember it, of the Norton Anthology of American Short Stories, opened at the spine right next to me. And I say I appear to be staring out the window because I'm not really staring out the window. I'm stunned, and I'm not quite sure what to do next. Because I've just read the spare, sparse, barely any dialogue, very little action. Short story, Those Who Walk Away from Omelas, by the science fiction writer Ursula K. Le Guin. Now, I don't know how many of you know this story, but I can give you an encapsulation why it stunned me so much. Omelas is a city, a city in the future, a city in the future that is prosperous and rich and in which so many people, almost everyone has health and well-being and it's an artistic city and so many things appear to be going right. Now, the citizens of Omelas, well-fed, well-taken care of, when they reach the age of between 8 and 12, they are shown the secret for why Omelas is so well off. They are taken to one of the finest houses in this fine city on a hill. And they are taken down into the nether regions, almost a dungeon-like area of this finest house in this fine, fine city. And they see there in the dark, in the dank, in the dirt... A child who is bedraggled, who is in despair, who is in fact tormented and tortured. And these children are told, all of what Omelas is, is dependent upon the misery of this child. Now, most of the 8 to 12-year-olds who see this leave in tears and upset, and most of them eventually integrate this knowledge and go back to their lives, living in this wonderful city in which one person suffers for all. But some, we are told, walk away. Leave this place because it's too high a price for their conscience and their ethics to pay. Now, back in that dorm room, I know I cannot make immediate sense of what this story has just shown to me, but I know that as long as I have breath, this story will be with me. Even at 17 years old, in this cocoon of privilege and comfort, as I stare out the window at the Hill School, I know this story will be with me for a long time, because as fantastical as it is, that's really the best thing about wonderful fantasy fiction, is if it's really good... What it does, it doesn't transport us far away. It brings us right back to who we are and invites us to see the reality of our lives more clearly and with greater awareness. Today's movie, The House I Live In, brings home Omelas to me. Again, 25 years later. This movie that some of you have seen, but perhaps many of you have not, is an expose on the American war on drugs. In seven years of doing this here at Wellspring, seven summers I have never preached on a documentary before. 
and no movie has ever affected me like this movie has today. It didn't really tell me anything that I didn't know in bits and parts from other places, that I've read in magazines and journals as ideologically diverse as the American Conservative, as the Libertarian Reason magazine, as the left-wing Mother Jones magazine. didn't really tell me something I didn't know before, but it brought it home. This is the filmmaker, his name is Eugene Jarecki, trying to get in touch with what happened to one of the most important people in his life. See, he grew up wealthy and well-off, and his family and he himself formed an incredibly close connection, loving, meaningful connection with the woman who his family hired basically to raise him. But her life did not turn out so well. Now an African-American woman who's in her 80s, her life has been taken apart bit by bit because of crime and violence and the criminal justice system all associated with the war on drugs. And so using this as an opening, he wants to try to understand. As the movie shows compellingly, after over 40 years of this, this war on drugs, and over $1 trillion of our money, your money, spent, there has been no meaningful reduction in the use of drugs that are classified as illegal. And... We have turned what should be, as the documentarian says, and I believe, turns what should be a mental health issue and a spiritual health issue into largely in this country when it comes to our funding. And by the way, if we want to tell what our values are, we look at how we spend our money. We've turned it into a law enforcement matter. Now, I want to give you an overview of this, an overview of what's talked about in this movie. And I have to leave a lot out. You can go to the website for this movie and find out more of these facts. The drug war, such as we know it, the war on drugs in America started just about as long as I've been on this earth. A month and a year and two months after I was born. June 17, 1971, when President Nixon declared the war on drugs to be, or drugs themselves to be public enemy number one. He said that public enemy number one and the war on drugs was commenced. But here's the thing. I actually think Nixon was right in a lot of ways. The 60s were over. And as amazing as that decade was, as many necessary changes as happened in that decade to American society, it was also a time of profound excess as well. And many people were starting to come down from the fact that drugs were not going to liberate us, in fact, destroyed so many lives. And so Nixon's first approach to the war on drugs was only one-third of the money was to be spent on law enforcement and making this a punitive matter, a criminal justice matter, two-thirds was going to be spent on treatment and care and prevention. But a funny thing happens in politics. The urge to punish and to be punitive sells. It motivates people to get to the ballot box. And so the war on drugs, as the 72 election started to come close, became, for Nixon at least, the language of law and order. And that's where we've been ever since. And by the way, it's mostly true of just about every successful national politician there is. 
liberal, moderate, conservative, Republican, independent, Democrat, almost all of them, a few notable exceptions, but almost all of them fall right in line with this war on drugs. We see in the movie that there is a prehistory to this 40-year period. If we go back 100 years, 120 years, we see that the history of the war on drugs, making certain drugs illegal, is bound up not first and foremost with the harm that they bring to human beings, but the fear of those who are in the majority, of those who are in the minority. You know when opium became illegal in this country? When white folks in California started to be afraid of immigrant Chinese people taking their jobs. It was based on the fear of the other, of the foreigner. America has 5% of the world's population. And we have 25% of the world's prison population. Currently, a half million people in jail for nonviolent drug offenses. In 2009, 1.7 million arrests there were for nonviolent drug offenses. Now, nonviolent, that's the key. I'm a firm believer that if someone is high or drunk or stoned and harms another person, creates legal chaos, they should be punished to the fullest extent of the law. Hear me clearly. But we're talking that the majority of these arrests are non-violent people. This movie is filled with so many stories that broke my heart and so much clear and right thinking that I wish was so much more mainstream, but it is not. It quotes a woman named Michelle Alexander that some of you might know who wrote a really compelling, challenging book called The New Jim Crow that takes a look as a subsection of this book, our move towards mass incarceration, so much of it bound up with this war on drugs and the ways in which chances for employment, voting rights, housing rights, all are compromised by even one arrest or conviction for a nonviolent drug offense. And we see in this movie the families and the children that are John generation after generation into the chaos and the harm of the drug war. We see it especially, although not exclusively, in the lives of poor people. Poor black, brown, and white people. We see it in the forms of mandatory minimum sentencing that compels judges to have to impose sentence even if circumstances don't dictate it. One of the interviews, one of the most compelling interviews in this movie is with a federal judge in Iowa whose hands are cuffed by these mandatory minimums, by these sentencing guidelines. And he asked the camera at one point, he says, do you know what it's like to go home at night having done an injustice to another human being? I do. David Simon, who is the creator of The Wire, the HBO television series that for me is the moral equivalent of a call to awareness in the same way Charles Dickens of our spiritual tradition, in the same way he called the ills of Victorian England and put before them in fiction form, in narrative form, the people who were on the margins. David Simon, who before he became an author and a writer, was a reporter. He worked the police beat in Baltimore for well over a decade. He has seen how the obsession with stats has drawn good police, the kind of police who we need working, you know, crimes, murder, assault, crimes that are tough to solve and take a lot of time. Well, he's seen a shift over the years in this war on drugs 
towards just rolling up on the corner and taking as many people in because that's what the bureaucracy rewards. Stats. Getting people in. Getting them in the system. He said it would be one thing if this war on drugs was draconian and it worked. (laughs) But it's draconian and it doesn't work. Remember cops? Still on. Bad boys, bad boys, what you going to do, what you going to do when they come for you, all that nonsense. Well, one of the things in the movie is they feature Providence cops who were featured on cops, kicking ass and taking names 20 years ago in the drug war. Well, they show them 20 years later, beaten down and demoralized and knowing that being narcotics officers doesn't make a difference. They question the value of their work. There are tough thoughts and there are heartbreaking stories all throughout this movie. And I got to tell you, there's one person who's interviewed, not a social critic, not an activist, not a filmmaker, not a narcotics officer on the front lines, but a guy named Mike Carpenter, who is a meat and potatoes, Oklahoma conservative corrections officer working in the jails for 20 years, describes himself as a law and order guy. But he's seen all these people come through the system. And he says, this is how the war on drugs is what it's based on. We make them, the dealers, we make them, the addicts, other. And we think if we hate them, our lives will be better. Everybody's got to have an enemy. And then he concludes, the people who are the objects of the drug war... They are paying for our fear instead of paying for their crime. They're paying for our fear rather than their crime. I think he nails why, after 40 years and no meaningful difference made, why we keep at this fruitless fight. Because it is so easy to need an enemy. It is so easy to divide the world into us and them. Now, please hear me clearly, and some of you know this about me already. I am in recovery. I'm in recovery from the most popular legal drug there is, called alcohol. I don't think if we decriminalize drugs of any variety that somehow things are going to be made easier overnight with people with addictions. I have seen and continue to see the harms of addictions in my life and in other people's lives. But there are better ways to go about fighting the scourge of addiction rather than criminalizing it. One of the reasons we keep on with this fight, and it's very disturbing, so the movie shows there's this thing, and it's called the prison industrial complex. You might know about it. We now are growing for-profit prisons all across America. And so we see the collusion between really, really bad government policy and the quest for corporate profits come together and wanting to keep the line moving. (laughs) Criminality, or what we call criminality in the drug war, is now about supply and demand. But I think it's something deeper than just the profit motive. I think it's something deeper about who we are and who I hope we don't want to be, but we can end up being. And I think it goes back to Omelas. It goes back to fear. Now, some of you know what this is. 
That is the Maslowian hierarchy of needs. And I don't anticipate you can read all of those right now, but it starts at the base of that pyramid, this basic pyramid that talks about all the things that we need to grow in this life, starting with physiological needs, safety and security, love and belonging, self-esteem, and finally self-actualization. Maslow always liked to put, you know, the, the Gandhis and the Dr. Kings and the Mother Teresas in the self-actualization. In fact, it's not just for the famous ones. <laughs> the problem in the war on drugs, as I see it, is that we get stuck down towards the base. This quest for safety and security, which is a legitimate need, but which can become an addiction in and of itself. Sadly, I think we have given in to fear. We have given in to what is a base appeal to the lower levels of who we are, this addiction to security. That's what those who stay in Omelas choose. They choose a scapegoat. If that person suffers, if they out there suffer, then we can be safe. This is one of the oldest, most cruel religious myths that there are. And this is an inherently spiritual question, folks, if you think I'm talking too much about policy today. This is an inherently spiritual question. Because in our quest for security, sometimes our addiction for security, how does that yearning for security end up causing the pain and suffering of other people? How does that addiction for security cause other people to suffer? We see it in the life of George Zimmerman even though he was told to the police not to follow, not to go, still had an image of who Trayvon Martin was and made pursuit after him. I heard it recently. There's this report on the drone war. We hear about these drone wars. Hey, bloodless war, no such thing. And many more people than we have thought innocent people have been killed because of what's going on in our names. It's the same continuum to the war on drugs itself. And it is an addiction. Because addictions just want more and more and more. The quest for security and the quest for security and the quest for security will not make us more safe. It will make us more afraid. And it will make other people in the place of the enemy. When we live according to the dictates of fear, it crowds out all other values. And when we feed only fear and disregard the other values, love, compassion, connection, creativity, spiritual depth, we actually don't end up making our world safer. To learn to walk away from these systems of thought and action and behavior that put security at the very center of who we are. Well, there's guidance in this. If you go ahead, two slides. Bishop Desmond Tutu, an apostle of love, reconciliation, and peace. He said these amazing words recently that perhaps some of you know. He said, if it is true that God would condemn to eternal hell all GLBT people, he said, I would choose hell then because such a God cannot create heaven. That is one who is willing to walk away from Omelas. That is choosing, as the Buddhists might say, the Bodhisattva path. That to know ultimately enlightenment in the fullest sense must come to all of us and is never complete until that point. That is a universalist message. It is following what Jesus of Nazareth said, which is that love truly can cast out fear. But they have a tough time coexisting together. To overcome this addiction, this addiction to the war on drugs, means that just like all addicts, myself and others, 
have to do. We have to start coming clean and to try and live in a different way. It means returning to what actually President Nixon felt but did not follow through on, which is that this is a public health issue, not primarily an issue of criminal justice or warfare. Some of you know the movie Traffic came out about a decade ago, fictionalized form of the war on drugs, and it has this guy who's about to ascend to the role of drug czar. Well, it turns out alcohol and drugs predominate his whole family's life, and his daughter has become addicted to heroin. And he says, I don't know how you can wage war on your own family. And he walks away. We begin to walk away to this addiction to the war on drugs by admitting that not all drugs are the same. I find it absurd. And I have not smoked a joint in 15 or 16 years and don't plan to for the rest of my life. It is absurd to think that marijuana, which is addictive, it's absurd to think it's more harmful than alcohol or nicotine. And this prohibition shows us Banning alcohol didn't work. It just added a criminal incentive. And so I get kind of annoyed right now when I'm watching The Daily Show or Colbert Report, both of which I love. But whenever there's a new law that comes up about legalizing or decriminalizing marijuana, they put a little image up in the corner, and it's always a little joke, a little pun, like high-flying or pole smoking or something like that about the, you know, what it is about the politics of marijuana. And people laugh at it, except that's not funny. Because states that are trying to make a difference and perhaps legalize a drug that should be legalized and regulated, that is walking away from the war on drugs. To learn to walk away from this war on drugs into treatment, into care, into compassion for suffering addicts and their families is to follow a guy like this. For those of you who watch The Wire, that's a guy named Bunny Colvin. He has been serving in West Baltimore in crime-addled, drug-written parts of that city for decades. And he is just tired of doing the same thing and doing the same thing and doing the same thing and none of it making a difference. And so he decides he's going to take one of the most crime-ridden parts of the city, four square blocks, and he's going to call it Amsterdam. Except none of the dealers or users in West Baltimore have been outside of West Baltimore, so they'd start calling it Hamsterdam. And in Hamsterdam, they have decriminalized the sale of drugs. It's not heaven on earth. It's awful. But you know what? By taking all those drugs off the corners... The kids and the old people and the folks who were terrorized by the guns and the violence and the criminality of the war on drugs and the cops being in their place all the time, those places start to thrive again. Now, the sad thing is of the story of Amsterdam and The Wire is that the bureaucracy doesn't like it because they want their stats. They want their arrests. And so they shut it all down. To walk away means to show creativity and compassion for those who are most innocent and suffer. We see it in this movie. We see the addicts, we see the people going to jail for a long, long time, much more than seems rational. 
And we see the children and the families they leave behind. We see the same cycle. Busted up families. The cycle of despair. And the cycle begin itself again. My heart breaks most for these children. And I ask myself, what could we do? What could we do here at Wellsprings? We've got an addictions and recovery team. One of my hopes, one of my dreams, I have no idea how to do this, but we had no idea how to do this when we started over seven years ago, is to make part of our ministry about caring for the children of people who are addicted. Sharing with them mental health resources and mentoring and guidance and companionship as they heal as well too. I've been talking to some folks in this congregation who've been working over these last few months out in the world beyond Wellsprings about issues of violence. And I know some folks this fall want to start up a small group a small group that is about attending to those children who are lost in the system. Those children who don't get much notice. The kind of children that, by the way, if they are lucky and get connected with, find their way to Chester County Futures. So I want to implore you, if you have time, get signed up with Chester County Futures and mentor. These are children who need kindness, compassion, connection. For those of us who are privileged, for those of us, if you believe, as I do, and you may not, that the war on drugs as it is being waged does not work, we have to be willing to walk away, even if it's not a popular opinion. I've got to tell you, I've gotten in arguments with other people about this over the years. I've had people stop talking to me because they think I'm pro-drugs. <laughs> I'm not. I am anti-suffering. And this war on drugs just creates more suffering. This criminalizing of human brokenness and human despair that creates so much collateral damage. We have to be willing to walk away just as those who walked away from Omelas were willing to walk away from their privilege and their comfort because it was not worth the suffering. These are the final words from this amazing short story from Ursula K. Le Guin. The place those who walk away go towards is a place even less imaginable to most of us than the city of happiness they left. I cannot describe it at all. It is possible that the place they are walking to does not exist, but they seem to know where they are going. And she concludes the ones who walk away from Omelas. They walk in the direction of uncertainty. They walk in the direction of creativity. They walk in the direction of compassion. And they create the path by walking it. It's not clear for them already. In search of a more humane, more loving, and more compassionate place to call home. Because in the final account, it's not a place. It's a way of life. It's a way of being. And ultimately, it's in our hearts. Which is a house and a home that I hope all of us can inhabit today. 
Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Spirit of life, of love, God of many names, these wise words were written 2,000 years ago. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. Truly this, it is said, is the realm of God. May those of us have the courage who see injustice, who see suffering, have the courage to walk away, not in indifference, but in love. May we follow the dictates and the call of conscience and of heart to be people who are willing to see that which does not already exist, but we can create a realm in which those who are hurting are tended to, a place in which punishment is not the first option, a way of being in which love reigns. Amen.